0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, Church. My name is Deb, and today we're going to be reading from Acts 22, verse 30 to 23, verse 24. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that, say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea as the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. These are the true words of our living God.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Deb. I don't know if you know the story of the Trojan horse. No one uh, knows if this is true. It's more than likely to be mythological, but uh, it makes a nice story nonetheless. So the Greeks were uh, attacking and besieging the city of Troy, and they had been doing this for a long time, Uh, years in fact, and there were all these skirmishes, and they tried to break into Troy, but they couldn't quite... And uh, the siege just lasted and lasted and lasted, and there was just no way into the city of Troy until this uh, rather clever man called Odysseus, he's the hero in the story, came up with this idea that what they were going to do is they were going to build this big wooden horse, and the horse in those times apparently was a symbol of some kind of a peace offering. And so they made this huge horse, and uh, they then secretly uh, hid some soldiers inside the horse. Then they, the rest of the army got into their boats, in the broad light of day, so that all the Trojans sitting on the wall of their city could see, and then they sailed off. Well, of course, the Trojans, uh, who are the dimwits in the story, thought, ha-ha, this is it. They have come with a peace offering. They have left. We have now won. So they all came charging out of the city to great applause, and then they wheeled the Trojan horse inside, and of course, you can fill in the blanks. The little soldiers jumped out, and the Death of night, and then they uh, sacked the city and set it on fire and uh, caused all sorts of carnage. And then uh, the ships turned around and they came right back in. Okay, so that's where we get the Trojan horse from. It's this big metaphor for kind of getting into the heart of enemy-occupied territory and then doing something, uh, something radical. Well, that is exactly what is going on in this story here. The big verse, the big idea is that God has got a plan for Paul's life. God in his sovereignty has got a plan, not only for Paul's life, but for his kingdom and for how his gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the facts of Jesus, how that is going to go forth. And in this great plan of God, the key place in the world at that point was Rome. And so God somehow has to get Paul from where he is into Rome, and he's going to use a bit of a Trojan horse to get Paul there. It's an unusual device. And, uh, The big idea is to see how God is absolutely in control and is sovereign of uh, manipulating circumstances. And so uh, my title today for the message is God's Unfoilable Plan for Paul. Okay, I think I made up that word. I'm not sure. Unfoilable. You know when you foil a plan is when you make it fail or you, uh, you undermine it in some way. Well, when God makes plans... His sovereignty means that you can't foil the plans that he has really set his mind on bringing to completion. It is hugely encouraging that we have a God who has the ability to make plans for the glory of his name. And nothing or no one, when he really puts his mind to it as it were, can get in the way of his plans. You cannot foil the plans of God. God has unfoilable plans. And I want you to take Great encouragement from this this morning. And how we're going to look at this today is we, uh, I'm going to try and take two perspectives. I ask you to step into the shoes of two people. The first person, the first shoes I want you to step into is those of Jesus. How would Jesus be looking at this historical narrative, this situation which has been reported to us faithfully by Luke? How would Jesus look down on this situation? Then secondly, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Paul. How is Paul viewing the situation which he is undergoing? And so on the first point, I want us to see the unfoilable plan from the perspective of God or from Jesus himself. So let's get to the key verse, just to establish this, which is in verse 11. This is the plan. This is the time. This is Jesus himself who talks to Paul. And it's the key verse in our passage, so we're just going to zoom right in on it. And in verse 11, it says this, The following night, the Lord stood by him, that's Paul, and said, This is Jesus, by the way. He's resurrected. He's alive. He comes and he stands in person. So it seems to be implied. In physical flesh. He somehow just appears in the jail cell. And he stands with Paul. And he says to Paul, Keep going. Take courage. The exact quote is this. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts... You see, Christianity is based on historical facts, true facts, verifiable facts. And the fact of the resurrection is being confirmed to Paul, as it were, right then and there, because he is standing, recently crucified, but now resurrected in physical form, speaking to Paul now. It's quite incredible. And he's saying, take courage. I mean, if that's not going to put a shot of courage in you, I don't know what is. The resurrected Christ standing in the cell with you. Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The grand plan was to get Paul to Rome, to stand before Nero, the Caesar of the time, this notorious man, so that he could give testimony. And that act was going to put Christianity on the world map. It had been expanding by this point pretty fast, but by planting Paul in Rome, it was, it was going to be this like nuclear detonation. And historical records show the spread of Christianity just goes to a whole new level. But how is God going to get Paul to Rome? He's going to use a Trojan horse. He's going to use the legal system of all things. He's going to put this man on trial. He's going to incarcerate him. And then he's going to get him from court to court to court until finally he can get him to Rome when Christianity really takes off in a big way. And frankly, you and I are grateful and are the products of some of these events that many, many centuries later, this expansion of Christianity and the gospel has reached people as diverse as you and as I. So this is uh, Jesus looking down, and he's saying, Paul, I have a plan for you. And so uh, we're just going to retell the story quickly, and then we're going to try and look at it from Christ's point of view, and then look at it from Paul's point of view as well. So just to give you a quick catch-up, if you haven't been with us in the last couple of weeks, so Paul gets himself to Jerusalem against some people's advice. He goes to the temple to offer sacrifices. He gets mobbed. He's about to be killed. He's getting ripped by a mob. The Roman uh, sort of constabulary or army comes in, and then they take hold of him and, and free him and rescue him. And uh, they lock him up. They're about to whip him. But then the, the commander, the the, tri- the tribune, and, uh, what, what he's called here, then releases, what doesn't release him, sets him before the Jewish court, because the Jews are the ones who are angry now with uh, Paul, and he gets taken to the council. So this is uh, the opening scene that we have, where uh, Paul stands there. He looks intently at them. This is in verse 1. He says he's lived in all good conscience. Then in verse 2, they uh, slap him across the mouth. This is the high priest Ananias. Uh, Paul responds in anger. But he then gets rebuked for his anger. This is in uh, verse 3. And then uh, Paul gives somewhat of an apology in verse 5. And then he comes up with a stroke of genius and then starts talking about the resurrection, which divides the room between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But before we get to this talk on the uh, resurrection, I want you to notice the unfair trial here. Paul hasn't done anything wrong. All he's done is actually he's complied with the law. He went to the temple to offer sacrifices, as in the previous chapter. He hasn't put a foot out of line. He's actually complying with these chaps what they want, and yet they're so angry with just his presence, just his, just him loving Jesus, just him being a teller of the resurrection. They're so angry with him that they want to kill him. He hasn't done anything wrong, and then when he tries to defend himself, or explain himself, he begins by saying, I have a good conscience here. Then they, they use physical violence against him in, as it were, a court of law before this council, this specially arraigned council. There's gross injustice there. Now, if you are Jesus looking in on that, how can you not think of your own trial before a high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, when Jesus Christ, who had no sin, no error, was brought before the self-same council in court, who had done nothing wrong at all and was convicted and condemned subsequently and ultimately to be put to death on a cross. How can Jesus not look in on this and go, Paul is walking in my shoes, as it were. Paul is modeling something that I have already done. This gross injustice and unfairness, like a bruised reed, he did not break, he did not cry out, it says. That's Jesus. And Jesus, as it were, is there in the courtroom with Paul looking down on the situation. But then there's another court scene, which Jesus would—I'm would, uh, not sure what the best way to put this is. is—let me put it like this. The central courtroom scene in the entire Christianity is Christ himself appearing before God as the great high priest offering himself as a sacrifice before God. For the sins of the world, for your sins and for my sins, having been put to death, having had the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, put on him, and having died for the sin of the world, presenting this sacrifice in the heavenly court before the heavenly judge, offering himself as the great high priest, the book of Hebrews says. And this is some of the great courtroom drama. And having paid for the sin of the world, then the judge turned his attention to Christ and said, I see you've paid, as it were, for the sin of the world, but is there any sin in you? To be the perfect sin-bearer, you yourself need to be perfect. And having found no sin, no personal sin in the sin-bearer, Jesus, God resurrected him, rose him from the dead, because there was no wrongdoing against him. Part of the message of the resurrection, which is where the story goes, is right into the resurrection. Part of the message of the resurrection was there was no sin in Christ, The resurrection is the establishment by the judge that Jesus Christ was absolutely perfect. If he had any sin, he couldn't die for our sin. But the resurrection is the proof that all sin has been paid for and that Christ is the perfect sin bearer, which is exactly where Paul takes us in the courtroom scene, where uh, he sees there are Pharisees and there are Sadducees. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection and some kind of afterlife. It says they uh, believed in uh, in spirits in the invisible realm. That's in verse 8. The Sadducees didn't believe in any kind of invisible realm. They didn't believe in any kind of afterlife, which, according to the old joke, is they were sad, you see, because they have no belief in any kind of future. And they were holding on to their power down here on earth. They were selling out to the Romans. So were the Pharisees for that matter. And it becomes a split room, a divided opinion about the resurrection. But the resurrection is where you always have to go. When you're talking and testifying to Christianity, the key, key, key moment is the resurrection. And uh, split screen, if you see Jesus watching down, being with Paul, I'm sure he was cheering him on when he started speaking about the resurrection, because the resurrection is the thing which divides the room. The resurrection is the thing which divides the room. Are you going to believe in the facts of Christ who was put to death, but then rose to life? That is the key question. And that is a question which I want to put to those of you here today who are not yet in the Christian faith. You may be exploring the Christian faith. You might be coming here week after week, wondering what it's all about. Well, I can tell you, the resurrection is your key issue. It's historically verified. Here are documents where people testify that Christ rose from the dead. He appeared in the heavenly court to pay for sin for all time. The resurrection is the key issue in Christianity, and that's exactly where Paul goes. Let me read uh, a few thoughts on the resurrection by Paul. A theologian called N.T. Wright, Uh, he puts it quite well. He talks about the resurrection like this, just to uh, excite you about the resurrection of Christ. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. The resurrection completes the inauguration that's the beginning of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. We could cope, and this is in reference here to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We could cope, the world could cope, with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples' minds and hearts. But the world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb who inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. The resurrection is the ballgame in Christianity. It is a resurrected Christ, and those who step into the resurrection step into the new creation, which is never going to be destroyed and will live forever. And it's this resurrection power which then can get released into the world, into society, into your jobs, into your families, into all the events that are confronting you at the moment. The resurrection is this intense power, which is where exactly Paul goes, and that gives him uh, strength and courage. Okay, so he's in the court, and now as the story goes on, God's got a plan to get him out of Jerusalem and to to Rome to uh, testify to the resurrection on the biggest theater and the biggest stage in the world before Nero, ultimately. But how's he going to get him there? Well, this is where God's plan is unfoilable. Because what happens is uh, he gets taken away because the the Sadducees and the Pharisees start fighting and bickering, and then there's violence, and Paul is going to get uh, uh, abused again. So the, the Romans take him, put him in the barracks. What happens next is quite bizarre, is Paul has a sister, so it turns out, the sister who has a son, so it turns out, who is just happens to over here on the street, I mean, I don't know how you picture this, is he in a tavern over listening to the 40 assassins coming up with their, you know, this is, this is the ultimate hit squad, 40 of them taking an oath, they're evidently a little bit overweight, because they said, okay, we're not going to eat until we whack this guy, and uh, well, they died hungry, we, we don't hear about them ever again, their plot never came off, and that's the point of the story. But somehow, this little, we don't know how old he is, I'd like to think of him as 13. This 13-year-old, let's just read between the lines, discovers this plot. Isn't that amazing? On the night before, they're going to execute, put this whole dirty arrangement into place the next day. On that very night, you would be forgiven for thinking God's in control. And what happens next is even more remarkable. This little 13-year-old just waltzes into the barracks and sees the prisoner. I mean, I mean, who's going to let this prisoner who they're guarding just receive a visitor from the outside? I mean, it happens. And then this guy says, the little nephew says, hey, by the way, you know, 40 of these guys, they've got long knives, they're going to take you out. So Paul then says, hey, go and speak to the centurion. I mean, that's a long shot. I mean, why would the centurion, who's in charge of 100 soldiers by definition, why would he listen to this little 13-year-old? Never believe it, but he listens to him. And then he says, hey, you've got to go and speak to the general." You got to go and speak to the commander. You know the Shahao of uh, of uh, those people. I don't know if you know Shahau. He's a high-ranking. Uh, anyway, enough of. Back to the Tribune. The commander. So this little kid, thirteen, goes to speak to this top dog in this of the Jerusalem garrison. It's quite remarkable. And then not only that, but then the general says, "Hey, let's go into a private room. I want to talk to you one on one." I mean, that's just absurd, right? I mean, like. Why is all this happening? Somehow God is at work. And then they hear of the plot. And then what happens next is uh, they have 470 soldiers to get Paul out of danger. If you're in danger, if you're in trouble, this is a God who can mobilize 470 soldiers at the drop of a hat. 400 of them had to walk. 70 got horses, and Paul got a horse too. This is a God who even to get you out of danger sometimes will give you a horse. The real Trojan horse, as it were. And off they go to Caesarea, to Caesarea, and the plot is foiled. You see, when God has a plan, it's unfoilable. It's unfoilable. And the dirty court with the dirty judge on it, who is now outside of session, making a deal with the hit squad to take out the accused, who's innocent, by the way. Well, 10 years later, he gets whacked by the Romans in the fall of Rome in AD 70. Okay, so that's from Jesus' perspective. What about from Paul's perspective? One final point on uh, Jesus' perspective is uh, he's sovereign. And and. Working definition of sovereignty this morning for our purposes. Being sovereign, when we say God is sovereign, it simply means this He can, the things He wants to do get done. He has the power to do the things that He wants to do. I want us just to pause and I want you to gaze up at this Christ who's resurrected, who is in all power, and if He has a plan for you, He's going to get it done. He might go through some hardship. You might go through some difficulty. That's definitely on the menu if you just follow Paul. But his plan is he's going to get it done. And this is a good segue into the next bit of looking at it from Paul's perspective. You see, often we like to talk about God's plan for my life. What's God's plan for your life? That's the wrong way to approach it, friends. The better way to ask, the better question to ask is, what is God's plan for God that he's going to use me in it? What is God's plan for God's name, for God's glory, that he's going to use me in it? Many people are always asking about life calling, vocation, and God's plan, and God's will. Well, God's plan is for God's glory, and he's going to use you. That is the paradigm that we should look at. Which is a good segue to look at this whole story from uh, Paul's perspective. So there he is. He uh, is following some kind of a call and an inclination from the Holy Spirit, as we've been saying in the previous weeks, to get himself to Jerusalem despite the danger. So this is point number two, the unfoilable plan from Paul's perspective. And uh, I want to just zoom out a little bit quickly and give you some further background on Paul, just so that you can appreciate some more of being in Paul's shoes. We're trying to get ourselves into Paul's shoes here. And I want to tell you this, is that a couple of chapters earlier in Acts, right about chapter 20, somewhere around there, he's on his third missionary journey, if you've been tracking with him. He writes a letter to the Romans. To the Romans. Rome, remember. And he says to them, it is my ambition to get to you. So maybe we can throw up that slide. This is uh, in Romans 15. If we have that slide. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel in Rome. You see, God, well, many years before this whole Jerusalem saga, God had put it in Paul's heart to get to Rome. You see, God places ambitions, dreams, desires in our hearts, which he wants to fulfill. They come from him. Um, Let's carry on to the next slide. Then he says to the Romans, this is the beginning of his letter, always in my prayers... I've been asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I want to get to Rome. I have this ambition to get to Rome. God has put it in my heart to get to Rome. I want to get there, but somehow I always get prevented. I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented. And then he will say it again in chapter 15. I have so often been hindered from coming to you in Rome. So here we go. God has an idea. He puts it in Paul. Paul is passionate about getting to Rome. It grips him. It's his ambition. He's got to get there. He's going to do everything in his power to get there. But somehow, there's just these roadblocks and these obstacles. I don't know if you can relate to that. Maybe God has put something into your heart, into your soul. Maybe there's something that grips you and burns you, and you feel like this is from God, and I've got to do it. But I keep getting hit by roadblocks. Best thing to do is to give it back to God. Often God gives us something and we need to give it back to Him just to establish that it's not yours, it belongs to Him, but He's put it into you. And then He gives it back to Him, and then God fulfills this desire in the most bizarre way, sending Him through court, through jail, through the Roman system to get Him to where He had the desire to go, which was in Rome ultimately. When you step back from the story, it's quite incredible. I say this to encourage you all. What are the things that God has put into your heart? Best thing to do is to lay them down. Just because it's your dream doesn't mean it's going to happen in the way that you determine it to be. If God wants to put you through this circuitous route to get you to where he needs you to be in his unfoilable plan, you need to trust him. But you see, if your paradigm is what's God's plan for me, you're going to miss it. But if your paradigm is, what is God's plan for God's glory that I fit into, then you're going to have the ability to go through it, which is exactly the strength that Paul had here. And so he stands there, he's under trial, his job is to testify, guess what the enemy does? The enemy slaps his mouth, I don't want you to testify, it's as clear as day, and in a sense it's confirmation that Paul is in the right place at the right time doing the right thing, testifying two courts, which is part of, remember when we discussed the Damascus road, part of the Damascus road was, Paul, that's your calling. That's where you're going. You're going to stand in front of people with authority and testify. But the enemy tries to get in the way and undermine what has been put in him to do. If that's you, if you feel like you've got something you need to do for God, but that very thing keeps getting tripped up or, or obstacled, It might be a clue or a hint that you're actually on the right way. So Paul has the humility instead of freaking out. Well, he does freak out at first, but then he apologizes and recedes. He's trusting God fully. And then he goes for the bullseye. He goes for the shot. And undeterred, he then says, even though he's been slapped and told not to testify, nonetheless, he testifies about the resurrection, about the resurrected Christ, about the facts of Christianity. And uh, let me read on from N.T. Wright because he uh, puts it quite well and hopefully this will put some courage into you all as well. He says this, people who believe in the resurrection, in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. They are unstoppably motivated. They are unstoppably motivated motivated. When the resurrection gets hold of you, it changes the way you see everything. And uh, maybe I can read the next paragraph here. N.T. Wright says, hope is what you get when you suddenly realize that a different worldview is possible. Hope is what you get when you suddenly realize that a different worldview is possible. A worldview in which the rich, the powerful, and the unscrupulous do not, after all, have the last word. So much of our experience on this earth is that the rich, the powerful, the unscrupulous, those are the the bad guys, have the last word. But the resurrection tells us and shows us that that's not the last word. There is going to be a judgment. There is going to be an ultimate court. There is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And those in Christ, those who have stepped into the resurrection, those who are in Christ, those who are inside him, and that was what we looked at last week, those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ are resurrected too. They have had their sins wiped out. They are connected to God. They are united with God, and they have everything to live for. Sure, there will be some obstacles and some hindrances and some darkness and some difficulty and some damage and some pain down here on earth, but just think of the resurrection. It changes everything. It makes us people who are unstoppable. If you can't be killed, what, what do you do with people like that? And as Christians, we'll die a physical death, but we will just get a physical body back. We, we, we become indestructible. We, we, we are these kind of people in Christ, in the resurrection to go into a whole new creation, into a whole new order. What about facing injustice? Uh, I know of marriages where spouse A is speaking to spouse B. And what if it's just completely unjust what one is saying to the other? What if you're in a relationship where you just can't speak as it were, have your day in court because you're getting your mouth slapped and it's just unfair and you just want to say, hey, but I've got my side. What if you're trapped in that? What if you're in a friendship where someone just refuses to speak to you? What if, what if you're in life somehow where there's just this massive injustice? What if there's something at work where you're being overlooked where your hard work is not being credited in some way. We face injustice all the time. We don't have to be before Ananias and the the other priests to face injustice. We face injustice all the time. This passage is so encouraging. Part of the message of this passage is when you are hit with injustice, when you feel like your side can't be stated, where you can't defend yourself in some way, the resurrection comes to your rescue. Because the resurrection is going to put everything to right. The resurrection is going to put everything to right. You don't have to have this burning pressure to defend yourself. We can handle injustice down here on earth because we know this is not the end. This is not the final word. That there's a new heaven. There's a new earth that we are going to. And then uh, finally, put yourself in Paul's shoes. He just witnesses this incredible turn of events these uh, 40 guys are going to whack him he gets re- he gets freed he has this protection uh, he gets taken back to Caesarea remember from the story in Caesarea Agabus the prophet came to him a few chapters earlier and said hey don't go to Jerusalem he makes a full circle he's back in Caesarea and he's like hey hi guys i'm back i'm here in Caesarea he, everything about him is being vindicated He's been walking with God. The Holy Spirit has said to him in chapter 19, verse 21. We missed that slide earlier, but don't worry about it. He resolved in the Holy Spirit to get to Jerusalem and to Rome. He's on course. He's on target. And he has faith that this resurrected Christ is going to take him there. He's going to take him there. Uh, final story from my life, and then uh, we'll call it a day. I came to Singapore 2009 to uh, do something for God, to be used by God somehow. not saying I'm Paul, but I am saying I felt the Holy Spirit move our entire family from Africa to here. And when we got here, we tried to serve God. Our methods weren't perfect. Uh, We made some wrong decisions. We had a lot of uh, folly. We were high on enthusiasm, low on wisdom, I would say. And uh, we ran aground. Ran aground, our ship ran aground. And so we had to, we started a church. We had to close that church. I don't know if I'm saying this for the benefit of some of those who don't know me here. We started a church in Singapore in 2010, but that church ended. And we got to this point where we felt like it was a message to go to Rome, but then we had to give that dream, that desire, that hope back to God. But here's the thing, is that when God gives you something and then you give it back to him, and then he gives it back to you, it'll happen in a way you least expect, at a time you least expect. And here I am. not saying I'm Paul, but I am saying this is second bite of the cherry. This is take two. The dreams and desires that God puts inside of you, sometimes you have to lay them down. But you never know, you never know, how God is going to resurrect them and raise them up. Why? Because he is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And he's doing things for his glory and for his name. And he wants to use you. He has a plan for you. He does have a plan for you. And that plan revolves around him being glorified. So the best thing you can do is to lay yourself down, is to surrender your hopes, your dreams to him, give them back to him, and say, Lord, would you bring this about in your way, in your time, that you might be glorified. And what happens next is an unfoilable plan. Shall we pray? Lord, how great you are. The God of the heavens, the the king of the kingdom, the great potentate, the ruler of all, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the emperor of emperors, Caesar of Caesars, how awesome you are. Lord, when you move, there is nothing that gets in your way. Lord, thank you for stirring us this morning. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for the example of Paul. Lord, would you make us strong as a people? Would you help us to endure difficulties and hardships? Lord, for my friends in this room who are, as it were, in some kind of a jail, in some kind of a dark place, in barracks, handcuffed in some way, shackled, in chains despairing possibly, hurt, broken, not knowing how they will get their way out of the jail. Lord Jesus, as the resurrected one, would you stand with them? Would you stand alongside them? Would you be with them? Would you shine with light? Would you give them hope? Would you breed confidence in them? At the resurrected Christ, you can move and mobilize 470 soldiers can come to the aid of us in Singapore today. Lord, would you make us a people who speak about the facts, the true facts, the historical facts of this great resurrection. Mm -hmm. Lord, for those who are tired, for those who are limping, I pray you'd put resurrection life in them this moment. Resurrection life to you, church. Gaze upon the resurrected Christ. Just have a moment where we look at Jesus, the resurrected one, the ascended one, the one who's paid for your sin, the one who's brought you into himself. Won't you just stare at Him today? I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to release courage. I like the Holy Spirit wants to give supernatural courage today, a courage that is beyond our understanding. Why don't you just symbolically open your palms just to receive from the Holy Spirit this morning. For those who are tired, I speak resurrection life over you. For those who are downcast for those who are troubled by circumstances. Look to the Supreme God this morning. Lord Jesus, as you've done so many times before, would you open your hand to give good things to your children? Would you increase our faith? Would you make us strong, Lord? Just like you came and encouraged Paul, oh God, would you Do the same today.
0: You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.